The Expats is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. The network was created to help Alberta podcasts grow, improve in quality, and reach wider audiences. It does this thanks in part to support from founding supporter ATB Financial. We've actually added new podcasts to the Alberta Podcast Network's ranks recently. New shows that are being made out of southern Alberta are now a part of this growing network of high-quality Alberta-made pod. You should check out Assumptions, which is a podcast about two friends, a Christian and an atheist who try to understand the other's worldview. There's Desktop, a technology podcast focusing on the intersection between how we use tech and how it affects our lives. There's Future Chat, a discussion show about science and technology, looking at the big picture and debunking bad science, which is something I'm always up for. There's Girl Tries Life. It's a podcast for women who are reaching their dreams. It's an interview show hosted by Victoria Smith. And finally, there's Makeshift Stories, a journey into the improbable, speculative fiction, sci-fi, and fantasy stories for all ages. It's actually the network's first fiction podcast. That's five new podcasts being made right here in Alberta. You should check out. Find out more about these and other great Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Osaka is the second biggest city in Japan, dwarfed only in size and population by Tokyo. In terms of its geographical size, Osaka is about 223 square kilometers, just over one-third of Toronto's 630 square kilometers. And if you think that Toronto's crowded with about 3 million people... Imagine removing 66% of it and then adding in another 16 million people. That's 19 million people in the Osaka metro area. It's been called the nation's kitchen because it was a massive rice trading hub during the Edo period between 1603 and 1868, and it hasn't lost its status among foodies. It's often cited as the place to visit in Japan if you love food. Just type Osaka food into Google, and you'll see bloggers and, and media websites talking about this being a hub of food in Japan. Join me as we meet a Canadian who graduated with a teaching degree in 2000, worked in a warehouse for three years, and figured he could do with a year teaching abroad in Japan on the expats. Welcome to the Expats. I'm your host, Adam Rosenhart, based out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Jevin LaRock intended to spend a year teaching in Japan, and he stayed for 14 and a half years. He's now a permanent resident there, married to a Japanese woman and the father of three boys. To hear Jevin tell it, he's exactly where he should be. Oh, and one more thing. Our Skype connection wasn't amazing for this episode, so the sound's a little inconsistent, but I still think you'll enjoy Jevin's story. I graduated university uh, in 2000 uh, with an education degree. And 
uh, at that time, the education and, and kind of um, the environment in education in Alberta was uh, not the best. There, there, there were still a lot of problems with having uh, had a lot of the funding cut. It was difficult to find a, a job in a place that you wanted to, to work in, that sort of thing. So I ended up working, uh, you know, in a warehouse and in a bar and, and not teaching. And after three years, three years, after three years, I, I said, you know what, I, I want to teach and I'm not sure this is the place to do it. Uh, I'm going to go somewhere. And I had met a lot of people, maybe maybe a dozen people who had gone to Japan to teach for a year. And I decided that's what I was going to do. I was going to go to Japan, teach for a year. Uh, it took me no time at all to find a place that was willing to uh, give me a visa and hire me and, uh, and bring me over, give me a place to live. Uh, and boom, just like that. I, I had no real innate desire to go to Japan specifically. It just seemed like the place the people were going. So, I, you know, I came here knowing virtually nothing about the country, having not really prepared myself to come here. I hadn't researched anything. I didn't speak the language in the slightest. I just kind of came. Crazy. That seems, that seems like a rather daring thing to do. Well, you know, <laughs> I made the decision to come, and then it took me about a year to, to really say, okay, I'm really going to go. Uh, and, you know, I, I wasn't nearly as afraid of coming to Japan as I was of just going to work in a junior high school in Edmonton. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it just, it just seems like an all right thing to do. So that's, that's, I just did it. When you first uh, made your way there, did you start in Tokyo or did you start in another town somewhere? No, Osaka. Uh, Osaka, the second biggest city in Japan, uh, is where I started. And I'm really happy I did. Osaka and Tokyo are very, very different cities from each other. Uh, I've been to Tokyo several times, and it's um, it, it goes at breakneck speed, that city. Everyone does everything just with their entire heart and soul, and that, that means work, that means uh, drinking, that means hanging out. It's just, it's such an uh, intense city. Osaka, on the other hand, is much more laid back. People are more interested in general in just enjoying themselves. It, it's, it's a much more easy to get along in city. You don't get lost in the just absolute tumultuous nature of it. So I'm really happy that I, I came to Osaka rather than Tokyo. And is that where you are now? Or I thought you were in Tokyo. No, I, I'm in Osaka. Uh, Osaka, I, uh, I spent my first five years in Osaka. Then I moved to Hiroshima for six years. And then uh, four years ago, uh, I moved back to Osaka. Oh, okay. Now, you had mentioned the sort of the hard-drinking uh, Japanese, I don't want to call it a stereotype, but it's certainly something that I've heard about before. What do you think that's all about? Why Why is there this desire to just really kind of go hard or go home? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. Japanese, uh, Japan really is a drinking culture. Uh, there's uh, just this kind of expectation that uh, people will do something concrete to wind down and to 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 kind of get the stress out of their lives and just a, a lot of people choose drinking to do that uh, there's a, a famous statistic that there is one licensed drinking establishment for every 81 people in japan which means that you could uh, in a city like osaka or in a place like osaka you could drink at a different place every single day and never get to all of them 
in your entire life. So there's this whole idea that you should be relaxing in this way, which is, which is beautiful. It means that there's a lot of uh, kind of companionship and bonding over drinking. There's also uh, just this fantastic idea about drinking with the people you work with. And the idea is that if you go out uh, in, on a work kind of party and you get absolutely plastered, you get really drunk, and you say to your boss what you've always wanted to say to him, there's this social norm that your boss behaves from the next day on as if you never said it. You don't, there's no social repercussions and no professional repercussions for having told your boss what you really think of him and, and his policies and what, what happens at work because you were out drunk and it works. It's fantastic. That's, that's an amazing get out of jail free card. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and I've seen it happen and, and it's happened for me. Uh, you know, just, uh, I, I started work at a, uh, at a high school in Hiroshima, uh, and my, my first day. Uh, they said, okay, we're going to go out drinking tonight. We're going to have a picnic in the park. And uh, the principal bought, uh, brought along uh, two giant coolers full of beer and some sake. And uh, we got just absolutely wrecked in the park. And I, I fell down the hill and I woke up in the morning and I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to be fired. I, I, I got that drunk. You know, I, I, I tried to sumo wrestle the principal uh in the in the grass and uh no one ever said a word not one word it was just accepted that's something that happened while we're out drinking it's good to go that is incredible i mean does that does that give you maybe license to potentially influence changes in policy if you don't like what's happening where you're working you just have a drink with the boss and tell him how you really feel that would be nice. <laughs> However, influencing policy is not part of the cultural norm, <laughs> cultural mindset here. Uh, a lot of, uh, maybe probably the most frustrating thing to the expat community here is that policy doesn't change. There's another famous saying, it says nothing in Japan changes until it does. And what that means is that you'll go years and years and decades of everyone knowing that something is being done wrong, that it's not working, that it's not effective, and it just doesn't change. No matter how many people bring it up, no matter how many great ideas, the, the response is, this is the way we do it because it's the Japanese way. And then something will happen, finally, usually, uh, where just for some reason, throughout the entire industry or culture or whatever, there's just a sudden change. And then everyone's got to deal with that immediate and sudden change. So... It is, it's frustrating in a way that you think something like this drinking culture could allow you to sneak in a little idea here or there, but there's a, a lot of walls put up to, uh, to prevent that from happening. That's interesting. Now, I, I'm curious, do you think that um, the sort of hard drinking, I, I, and I don't want to like, I don't want to belabor the point or blow it out of proportion, but do you think that it's something that, you know, the Japanese people maybe just take this really seriously and so... If they're going to, they take their work seriously, they take their education seriously. And so they just take their drinking and, and that kind of their vices seriously. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. A lot, a lot of, uh, people take not just drinking, but kind of anything they do recreationally quite seriously. Um, I've met so many Japanese people who tell me they have a, a hobby that they do on weekends. And when I finally get to see them doing that hobby, practicing that hobby, they're very close to professional level at it uh you know you, you meet someone who says you know i i 
play the piano from time to time and then you you visit their house and they have this huge grand piano in their tiny little house and they just belt out this this amazing piece of music or someone says you know i go kayaking on the weekends and uh, they, they invite you out uh, to a kayaking event and you realize that they're doing 25 mile kayak races that you know against professional kayakers it's it's this this idea that when you do something when you choose to do something it's important to really do it to, to do it with with a part of you that means something uh, and that's it, it's a really beautiful thing about Japan it's why there are uh, all of these examples that you'll see uh, on the internet and elsewhere of just really beautiful kind of artisan type work and craftsmanship that still exists a lot of that isn't professional a lot of it is hobby based and people keep these things alive by really investing themselves in what they're doing. That sounds really amazing. What have you been able to sort of take away from that mindset as you work on your own hobbies or or your own, you know, your career in teaching? Yeah, well, um, to tell the truth, when I first got here, my first couple of years, uh, I worked uh, at a place, at a, at a school, a language school, not a proper high school. Um, it, it was a huge school. We taught... Uh, on the internet, we talk uh, over the computer uh, on a kind of Skype-like interface. Uh, but the, the thing is that it was full of uh, expats. We had, uh, when I started working there, over 500 English teachers alone, plus several hundred other language teachers, Chinese and Italian and Spanish and French and German. And it was a place where socializing and joining this drinking culture to a degree became really, really, really kind of all-encompassing. And it became a problem for a lot of people. And so I kind of early on realized that if if uh, I was to dive into this do-everything 100% mentality, that it would be problematic for me. So I, I took a step back from it. I took a step uh, kind of away. After a year or so, I took a step back from that kind of diving into everything. Um, and so I found myself not participating so much in this in this kind of uh give 110 percent deal and just watching it and appreciating it uh and it's it, i think it was helpful in that regard you know i lasted a lot longer uh at the job and and in the culture than so many people uh who came here but sorry no i gained st stuff from it you know uh i found working with japanese teachers that uh, the amount of research and effort they put into their jobs uh, really affected me. I, I started to feel lazy <laughs> putting in the amount of work I was. So I, I started putting in more work, doing more reading, improving myself professionally, just to kind of keep pace with the amount of work they were putting in. Wow, that's great. That sounds really terrific. Now, you, you got your start in, a, you said, an English language school. You're, right. you're, are you, you're obviously not there anymore, I assume. Right. Uh, I worked uh, there for five years, and it was, uh, like I said, this huge place, but it was also a really big national company with hundreds of locations around the country. And rather suddenly, over the course of about six months, uh, after in, in, towards the end of my fifth year, uh, fourth year, so almost five years, it just uh, it went under. It, uh, it just collapsed. It had a bunch of legal problems. Uh, and had been run quite poorly at the top, and it just all of a sudden went under. So now you had these thousands and thousands of teachers around the country, English teachers who were here teaching at the school, just out of work, you know, suddenly. 
And so everyone was scrambling to find work here and there. And I really lucked into uh, a position with a, a, a company that uh, was hiring only people with education degrees, which made it easier for me to get a job there. Uh, but to have us uh, go into junior and senior high schools and create uh, a new kind of curriculum uh, for the high schools that focused on uh, communicative ability rather than technical mastery of the language. And it was exactly what I was looking to do. And so I moved into teaching in private junior and senior high schools, which I've been doing now for uh, just over 10 years. Now, had you always intended to stay in Japan for this long? Not at all. I, I, I was going for a year. When I came here, I was, I'll just take a year. Uh, but like I said, I, I worked at that place with uh, so many people. And when you have so many people, you're bound to meet some great people. And I met uh, just a, a group of just fantastic friends. We all ended up moving into the same apartment building. Uh, very close to the same time, I met uh, actually at a Canada Day party in a Canadian bar in Osaka. I met a, a wonderful woman who uh, is now my wife. Um, it, it just, it snuck up on me. You know, it, it was it was a good time and it was interesting. And then all of a sudden I found out that I'd been here five years and I didn't have a job and I wasn't looking to go home. I was looking to find a new job. It didn't even cross my mind to go back to Canada. I was just looking for a new job. And, you know, I, it stopped even being an option to me. I don't think, I still think of Canada as home. Yeah. But I don't think I'll be back there to live. You know, it's just, it ended up being a place that just, I feel like this is where I belong. We're going to take just a quick break so I can tell you a bit more about our sponsor for this episode, ATB Financial. Now, full disclosure, I work at ATB. I started there in July of this year. And a big part of the reason that I did is because as far as financial institutions go, ATB does things differently. I don't know a lot of other banks that would underwrite a podcasting network because they believe it's important to support creators. ATB's promise is to not only listen to their customers, but act on what their customers tell them. It's why ATB's introduced technology like Apple, Android, and Samsung Pay and it's also why ATB is the first financial institution in the world to launch a Facebook Messenger virtual banking assistant. You can interact with the VBA to send money to people, move money between accounts, and even find out what current mortgage rates are. I was part of the huge project team that tested and deployed the virtual banking assistant, and I'm really excited about it. One of the cool features of it is that the more people interact with it, the more it learns how to be helpful. If you're interested in trying it out, search for ATB Financial on Facebook and send them a private message to start your conversation with ATB's virtual banking assistant today. And now, on with the show. Now, a big question I would have then around that is the question of citizenship. Can Is it easy or is it possible for people from other places to become Japanese citizens? It is, uh, according to most sources, next to impossible. Oh. Um, I'm, I'm a permanent resident, which is uh, the next step below uh, citizen, pretty much. Uh, and I don't have any uh, 
belief that I'll ever become a citizen. I won't uh, ever become franchised. I won't be able to vote or take part in that. I, I won't have the ability to ever collect, for example, any uh, welfare payments if that ever were to happen to me. Japan does not make it easy to become a citizen. They do not really have any desire to have uh, foreign people live here become citizens. Um, they make it even quite difficult to become permanent residents, like mm. I am in a lot of places. Uh, there's this fear amongst the conservative-minded part of Japan that allowing the kind of essence of Japanese-ness to be diluted will be the end of the country. Uh, I think you see that in any country. You have that kind of uh, fear, that uh, fear of being inundated by foreignness, that xenophobia, but that's uh, a lot more publicly on display here. Mm -hmm. People of that mindset aren't shy about sharing it. And so a lot of people who come here and want to stay for here for a while get really turned off by that and they get uh, angry about it and bitter about it. I haven't, and there's a, an important reason for that, and it's because I've found it extremely difficult to move beyond kind of basic level proficiency in the Japanese language. Hmm. I can speak to a, you know, kind of day-to-day -day degree. I can understand the language quite a bit better than that, but I've never been able to manage to learn to read, uh, which is problematic in a lot of ways. But in this one way, it's told me that I'm not going to be able to be a citizen of Japan because one of the requirements is that you be, you're completely literate. Uh, and so I don't kind of rail against it. I don't fight for it or against it. I've just recognized the truth about me is that I'm never going to be able to learn to read Japanese. Interesting. And yeah, so I'm, I'm just, I'm, I've, I've accepted that fact that there's always going to be this thing about me. It makes my life more difficult in a lot of ways. It means that I have to rely on a lot of people around me. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that creates a bond with some of those people. Uh, some of them resent it, I'm sure. But I don't have this desire, this push, and this need to really say, I want to be Japanese that uh, I've, I've seen in a lot of other long-term expats around here. And it's interesting that... Uh... I mean, I, I I was assuming that you'd married a Japanese woman. Is that is that true? It is true. Yes, my wife is Japanese, and it, it's another example of that. Give one hundred ten percent. When we met, she spoke almost no English at all, and I spoke very 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 little Japanese, and we communicated just through the most roundabout and uh, difficult processes. And in the for the first year and a half of our relationship or so, she put so much effort into learning conversational English. She, for example, uh, bought uh, some English DVDs. Uh, she bought uh, uh, the Disney Aladdin. And she watched Aladdin every single day for the better part of a year. Each day, getting two or three more words through it that she understood and being able to work on sentence structures and grammatical processes and just vocabulary. She now hates a lot and she can't watch it. <laughs> the type of effort that she put in just to be able to communicate with me. And as she got better and better, and I kind of plateaued at a low level of English, it gave me such this, this huge appreciation of how the, the Japanese norm for if you're going to do something, do it full tilt.
You know, that really makes me think that when you, the two of you met, it it must have been love at first sight. It was very close to it. You know, uh, I, I was participating in the drinking culture that night and being Canada Day, uh, <laughs> even more so. And so I, I remember only the vaguest hint of that evening. But, you know, I woke up in the morning with a phone number in my pocket and a name. And uh, I wasn't quite sure who it was. And I gave it a call. And it was someone who didn't speak English. But we worked out where to meet each other to find out why I had this phone number. And that next meeting, whatever it was, two days later, uh, was, was just eye-opening. It was fantastic. She took me to eat some Japanese food that was bizarre and awesome <laughs> at the same time. We ate uh, raw chicken breasts. What? <laughs> and, and, and chicken cartilage. And it was completely bizarre and uh, was delicious at the same time. And it was something where we bonded over that immediately. And I was so thankful to her for showing me this and giving me a story to tell people. No doubt. And uh, it just went from there. Uh, that's amazing. Now, you've been there a long time. Is there? Do you get much opportunity to come back to Canada? I come back every, usually on average, every second year or so. I, I try to get back for about a month. Uh, usually in the summer months, but uh, last year, uh, last December, I came back in, in winter, uh, which was incredible. I, I have three sons, uh, and it was their first time to see proper winter. Oh, wow. uh, Osaka, where I live, maybe gets about two centimeters of snow once a year that melts in about three hours. Um, so they really didn't know much about winter. So I took them up to uh, Tumblr Ridge, BC, in the mountains where my parents live. And they got to experience some real winter. It was great. <laughs> That's incredible. Are they? Uh, are they both? Are are all three of them English and Japanese speakers? Well, my oldest son definitely is. He's almost ten, and he's uh, he's completely fluent in both. Uh, my youngest son, who's only four, uh, is <laughs> he's pushing. He doesn't like to speak English. He understands it perfectly fine, but he uh, insists on speaking Japanese all the time. <laughs> I'm sure he'll come around to it. My middle son is uh, is learning disabled, and okay. so he has some difficulty in both languages, but uh, more so in English than in Japanese because he goes to a Japanese school and most of his interactions in Japanese. Uh, again, he understands quite a bit, but it's having a difficult time speaking. Um, hopefully, eventually, it'll become a real bonus to all three of them uh, growing up bilingual to a, at least the degree they can. Is there anything that, uh, even though you do come back every couple of years, is there anything that you miss about Canada other than friends and family uh, when you think about, quote-unquote, home? Yeah, oh, there's all sorts of stuff. I mean, what, the moment I hit the ground uh, in, in Canada, I, I immediately uh, run for a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. <laughs> the, there's been a couple attempts to get Reese's over here, but... Uh, it doesn't suit Japanese taste. They don't like it, so it doesn't stick. So it's just really hard to get them. Uh, uh, a lot of food stuff. You know, I yeah. I, I miss the, some of the chocolate, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, Taco Bell, it's absolutely, <laughs> uh, you know, it's not, it's terrible stuff. But I miss it. I miss it a lot. Although Osaka is getting one next week, so I may stop missing that. Oh, boy. Um, I, I think maybe the biggest thing is just kind of some of the, cultural comradeship things like uh watching hockey with friends mm -hmm. um you know 
hockey isn't a big sport here. My, my oldest son plays hockey for uh, for a local team, but uh, most people don't really know anything about it. Um, you know, I, I watch games on the internet, but there's no real getting together with your buddies and watching the game. You go to I go to work, and you know, I work with a British guy uh, who doesn't know much about hockey, and uh, I work with. Uh, another guy from Canada, but he's you know he's from Vancouver, so you know growing up with the Canucks, he doesn't know anything about hockey. <laughs> <laughs> and and of course, none of my Japanese coworkers know anything about hockey, so I, I miss that uh, that that kind of passion. Uh, they put their passion into into baseball here, yeah. And I, I enjoy baseball to a degree, but it's it's no hockey. So I, I miss that. Um, I do miss winter. I miss I miss being able to complain about how cold it is. It never gets that cold here. Um, if it even approaches zero, people think it's Armageddon. <laughs> I used to miss things more, but as I've been here longer and longer, uh, I'm filling those voids with other things. Like I say, I, I feel like I belong here in a lot of ways. Um, so there's not, it's, it's not a, a severe case of homesickness usually. Yeah. No, your story is a really interesting one. You know, some expats that I speak with, it's not that they have one foot out the door, but most of the one of the ones that I have interviewed expect at some point to come back. Like, but you, it really does sound like you're, you, you haven't referred to it as home, but that you are where you're supposed to be. Yeah, I, I feel that way. And, you know, I, I fought against it for a while. Uh, originally, when, when I asked my wife, when I asked her to marry me, uh, I had made it clear that I intended to move back to Canada and that I, if she was going to marry me, that, that I would hope that she would come with me. Hmm. And we, we went through our first couple of years of marriage with that assumption that we were going to eventually. And then we both just kind of realized... You know, neither of us were really actually making any concrete plans to do that. You know, I, I wasn't looking for a place to work or, or, you know, sourcing houses or trying to figure out even what city we'd live in. I was just working and getting along with our days and raising our children. And then uh, we, we spoke to him and said, you know, probably we're not going to we're not going to be moving to Canada. Uh, that we have a, a good and comfortable life here. We, we both we both have jobs that we enjoy doing. Uh, we, we have these, these these careers going, and our and our kids are comfortable here. The only thing that might convince me is Japanese high school mm-hmm. and junior high school prepares you very well for Japanese university, but not for post secondary education anywhere else in the world. Is that right? Yeah, there's a kind of very specific way that you're expected to learn and expected to prepare for things that doesn't prepare you for a kind of it doesn't give you a, a good general uh, knowledge base or uh, ability to think in, in the ways that a Canadian university, for example, would, would expect you or require you to be able to think in order to do well in an undergraduate course. Uh, Japanese universities are set up for people to work very hard on very specific pieces of information and very specific fields of study, not to have this kind of general ability to link things and to be able to write effectively, that sort of thing. And so if any of my sons kind of were expressing a desire to maybe go to university somewhere else, to maybe pursue uh, living or working somewhere else, I would consider moving back to Canada just to have them go to high school 
someone that would prepare them for a post-secondary career outside of Japan. Now, my last question is, uh, I don't want to say it's a doozy, but it's the ultimate question, which is, with your long experience living in Osaka, away from Canada, what advice would you give to other Canadians who are maybe thinking, hey, I might want to spend one year teaching English abroad or just, you know, finding a new home someplace? Uh, well, I think one of the strange things, one of the interesting things you learn being an expat is that there are a small percentage of people who come here because they desperately want to be here. There's another small percentage that come here because they're running away from something at home. They need to escape something. Hmm. And then there's a middle, a middle group who just want an interesting time. They want to come and experience something, uh, enjoy themselves, uh, kind of get that worldly uh, experience under their belt. Being that large middle group, I'm not sure is the best idea. Really? Taking a vacation is a wonderful thing. It really is. Taking a vacation somewhere, going somewhere for even an extended vacation uh, is great. It's great for you personally and, and it's, it's great for your, your psyche and, and the rest of your life. But going somewhere to work, especially teaching, when you're not really interested in teaching, when it's not really what you want to do, it's not what you're trained to do, it's not what uh, drives you, means that you're in the long run hurting the reputation of all of those who come after you. You may even be pretty good at what you do, at teaching especially, at, uh, at showing up and doing the job. But people, get, people have this impression in Japan that the expats here are here to get a little bit of money, experience some culture, and then jet and leave. Mm -hmm. They're not here to help Japan. They're not here to really to really teach anyone English, to really uh, improve the country in any way. And so people like to interact with them. People do interact with, with expats here, but they don't expect much of us. They don't expect us to be much more than a, a ghost that just pass, passes by. And so you do yourself kind of a disservice because you leave that impression with people here. And you do the people who are here long-term and even greater disservice. So if you're going to make the decision to do that, you need to make the decision that you're going to be there not only for yourself, but for the, the country and the people that you're going to live amongst. That concludes this episode of The Expats. If there are any expats you think I should be speaking with, have them email me at info at expatspodcast.ca or send me an email yourself. And let's keep building this global network of Canadians living abroad. I've been your host, Adam Rosenhart. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to The Expats wherever you download your podcasts and make sure you leave us a review. That would help us out a lot. You can also follow and like us on both Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Expats Podcast. The Expats is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. You can hear The Expats and other great Alberta Podcast Network shows on the fantastic G Radio. Visit gradio.ca to discover new and excellent content today. And if you happen to be a fan of CKUA Radio in Alberta or anywhere on Earth, like me, you should download the CKUA app where you'll be able to access all Alberta Podcast Network shows directly. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch up again in a couple of weeks. <laughs>